Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to the Simply Vegan podcast, the show that's all about making veganism easy, fun, and accessible. Brought to you by the team at Vegan Food and Living, the UK's best-selling vegan magazine. You can catch us every Tuesday and every Thursday. In today's eye-opening episode, I speak to the director of new film, The End of Medicine, along with the whistleblower at the centre of the film. We discuss some of the shocking issues raised, including antibiotic resistance, the state of factory farming and the potential for future pandemics, along with the very human cost of our current food systems. Life can be hectic and finding fresh and nutritional vegan recipes can become another thing to worry about. But don't worry, our best-selling magazine, Vegan Food and Living, is on hand to help. You can join us today and by visiting veganfoodandliving.com forward slash podcast or using code podcast when you order with us. Choose between our print and digital plus membership to receive the latest issue to your door or to your device, along with having easy access to thousands of plant-based recipes at your fingertips in our fully searchable digital magazine archive. Join us today and make cooking delicious vegan food that much more exciting by visiting veganfoodliving forward slash podcast. Today, I am joined by BAFTA award-winning director Alex Lockwood and pig vet turned activist Dr. Alice Bruff. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. Well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's, it's Alice, we chatted to you back in series four, didn't we? It was really was one of my favourite episodes. I'm not just saying that. It was, oh. <laughs> it was so kind of eye-opening and inspirational. 
Um, and a lot of the things we've chatted about on the podcast are actually part of the new film that you and Alex have worked on, aren't they? The End of Medicine. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely some overlap because I think when I came on, it was uh, more regarding the the legal case against the UK government. So, yeah, very similar themes. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's executively produced by Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara. How did that come about? Yeah, so basically... When uh, we started making this film before COVID-19 was reported on and after it came about, uh, Rooney and Joaquin, um, they decided they wanted to make a film on this subject. And then I I don't know how far into that process they got, but at some point they realised that we were doing the same thing and they'd worked with Keegan before and it just seemed a natural fit to just kind of um, join forces, you know, and they've been brilliant to work with. You know, it's a bit of a bit of a dream for me, really. I can imagine. <laughs> I know. It's like, can we have Joaquin on the podcast as well? <laughs> yeah. <Amen>. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it was kind of like when we started making the, uh, the project, we thought maybe when the film's finished, uh, we'll try and line up with, um, you know, an executive producer, because that's a lot of films, you you end up with an exec at the end who helps with the sort of publicity. Um, whereas to get exactly the people we wanted to have involved, involved right from the start and having their feedback on drafts and, and just their ideas has been really, really amazing, to be honest. It's just, yeah, it's incredible. So Alex, your background is in film, but what led you to take more of an interest in the environmental side of things? So basically, I I was originally making corporate films, which I absolutely detested because it was just <laughs> when, you know, it's just so kind of, I was making films that weren't necessarily in line with my values. Yeah. And then I was kind of looking for a film that I could make in my spare time to kind of show what I could do, but get out of making corporate films. And my wife, Nishat, found, um, she found an article on this farmer who was basically going to give up beef farming and give all of his cows to a sanctuary. And, And we made that film. And that process showed me that, like, I don't really want to do anything else I just want to keep making films and promote this message and particularly learning from um, that farmer and learning from that experience and seeing the you know what um, reaction we got to that and the impact even a short film can have I thought wow you know if we can keep doing this and and make feature films and and you know seeing the impact of other documentaries as well I just thought this is what I want to be you know making films that actually um are going to have a bit of an impact, you know. Mm, definitely. So that was 73 Cows, wasn't it, that film? And that was what won you a BAFTA, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Were, so were you vegan then when your wife kind of said about this um, farmer that was, you know, going to give up uh, beef farming for organic, you know, basically plant-based farming? No, I was vegetarian and I was heading towards being vegan. And I think I would have ended up there regardless that this absolutely sort of fast-tracked that process, particularly hearing from Jay himself, you know, somebody who's actually involved in um, producing beef and hearing that 
the reason that he switched to making beef was that he felt it was kinder than producing milk. And that was a real eye opener for me because I think a lot of people imagine um, this, you know, the meat industry is worse than the dairy industry or the egg industry. And learning that actually that's not the case at all, that was something that really fast-tracked my decision to go vegan. I think I couldn't have come out on the other side of making that film and not ended up being vegan, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about um, The End of Medicine. So it's it's quite heavy going, isn't it? I, I've watched it sort of in two <laughs> parts. I mean, it's an incredible film and I hope everybody watches it, especially people who aren't vegan. Um, I mean, if I wasn't vegan, I'd definitely be, you know, giving up meat right now after watching it. A few of the stats that shocked me were um, there are 8 billion humans on the planet and 80 billion animals being raised for food. Uh, In the US, 60 to 70 percent of pork and beef contains E. coli and 92 percent of chicken products. Um, 70% of the world's antibiotics are fed to animals. So there's some, there's some sort of really shocking, um, parts of the film, isn't there? And Alice, it's so nice to see you as like the star of the film. I mean, you are amazing. After I spoke to you in, you know, back in series four, you were such an inspiration and I'm, you know, it's, it's amazing seeing you in such a sort of a, a, you know, a big part of the film like this. Um, So shall we talk about some of the issues that the film raises? So part one focuses on pandemics, doesn't it? And it's it's funny to hear you say Mm -hmm. that it, you know, the film, you kind of started to work on the film before COVID broke out. Yeah, which is, um, it was really weird because obviously we're making a film in part about pandemics and then one actually happens. So the film had to kind of um, change direction a little bit from being something that was just a warning about something that could potentially happen in the future to being something that was also reacting to what's happening here and now, but not to the extent that it becomes a COVID film, because it's not, we touch on COVID, of course, we'd we'd have to really, but um, it's not a film about COVID, if that makes sense. No, it's not. The film touches on the fact that we kind of think this is a problem sort of somewhere else in the world, you know, wet markets, we don't have that here. So, you know, we're, we're okay. Um, and it's, I mean, there was a lot of, um, there's a scene that talked about, you know, racism towards, um, you know, Asian Chinese people, because we were kind of blaming them. Um, but it's happening, you know, right here, isn't it, Alice? Yeah, I think um, one of the main things, I mean, the film started production probably off the back of the fact that it's science, scientists for years have been sort of forecasting a global pandemic you know in the most common most likely um scenario would be something like an avian influenza or a swine flu like we saw in 2009 um because you know pigs and chickens are the most intensively farmed uh, and they're in such high numbers that it's it, generally that's the the most likely scenario um the fact that it came from a wet market you know it, it's the very same issue just in a different place with maybe different species involved you know the way that animals are kept in wet markets cramped unhygienic stressed is it, exactly reflective of you know the UK pig industry or the poultry industry it's, it's no different and it you know it's just luck of the draw where it starts off I guess. Mm, it's just I guess more behind closed doors isn't it with factory farming because 
you know, like in China, you can just wander around a wet market, I guess, and see it all there being, you know, done in front of your eyes. Whereas here it's all hidden, which is not any better. Yeah, it's very sanitised, isn't it? And we're, we're sold a very good image, and particularly in Britain, I think, of, uh, of livestock farming being this like old country tradition and, you know, all lovely fields and things. But it's very much a horror show on the inside. Um, yeah, I mean, tell us about some of your experiences. I know, obviously, last time you were on the show, um, you you know explained what it was like being a pig vet and why you gave that up. But for anyone who hasn't listened to that episode, just give us a brief overview of of what you know your journey was like. Yeah, um, it was an interesting one because I, I kind of went into the industry as a very heavy meat eater, very like pro farming from a sort of livestock farming family background. Um, and I didn't quite realise until I started going around, you know, many, you know, hundreds of farms uh, and seeing the same hideous suffering, the same disease issues, the same amount of antibiotics having to be prescribed at every visit, you know, that I realised how widespread these issues were. Um, and even on family farms, wasn't it? That's because I know a lot of meat eaters that I know will say, oh, but I don't eat that kind of meat and I'm like yeah bite your, t- bite your tongue Holly don't say anything don't don't cause a scene but... <laughs> yeah it's hard it's really hard not to cause a scene all the time but um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah I mean my experience with family farms were very varied uh, and I think that is reflective of farming in general is it is very varied um most meat does come from intensive agriculture now that's just the way of the world and, and that includes Britain um, but the sort of smaller family farms are not exempt from the suffering. They're not exempt from um, disease. And in certain circumstances, it was almost worse on those farms because it didn't, it wasn't as well regulated or monitored. And, it, you know, it didn't really, it wasn't turning a profit in the same way. Um, so I think, and ultimately, they all end up at the same slaughterhouse, um, which is hideous on all fronts. So, I think that argument is not a valid one <laughs> at no. all. Um, and I think also for uh, this is mentioned in the film, but if we want meat from many small sort of free range or, or higher welfare and in inverted commas farms, we simply do not have the land and resources to do that. So it's just not a viable option, really. Yeah, I mean, something that sort of struck me, we, you know, you were saying about the smaller farms is they don't have as much money, so they can't necessarily treat the animals when they need to be treated or, you know, with antibiotics and things like that. So actually, it's not always the better option at all. No, I, I mean, I, I picked up a farm sort of later on in my four years in the industry that had been not had an inspection for 20 years it was just like a sort of family farm they had like a farm shop attached and they were selling like their own meat and they'd had like a small animal vet prescribing them as in like a cat and dog vet prescribing them vaccines and medications as they needed it without any experience in dealing with livestock or pigs um and I went in and I, you could hear the coughing like a mile off. And I did some post-mortems. Like they looked awful, these pigs. They were like, some of them skeletal, yellow, like just absolutely hideous. And I did some post-mortems. I remember opening up the chest cavity and the lungs were like black. 
and like abscissated and it uh that has just stuck with me because that was like a you know they've they've got a lovely family farm shop and yeah. people are probably going in there thinking they're getting the best and they're probably being charged for the best yeah and what the reality is is the pigs are suffering horrendously and they're just riddled with disease that we don't know anything about because they didn't have any vets going there yeah. for 20 years um yeah pretty astonishing but. that's unbelievable that that is still happening in today <laughs> Oh, the poor pigs. I just I just can't bear it. I know last time we spoke and I was worried about watching the film, I must admit, because I am a massive wimp and I just get so emotional. And I was like, I've got to watch it. I've got to watch it. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't too bad. There was nothing because I, I do worry about watching sort of vegan films in adverted mm-hmm. commas because and I know a lot of people I know who are vegan do because you don't want to see real suffering. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't go... It didn't sort of cross the line. So um, well done on that. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know because um, we were really keen for it to be something that would be accessible and wouldn't have that, you know, overly scary feel because, um, you know, it can really put people off watching something if they think they're going to see something graphic. And so we had to decide where the line was. And, um, you know, I I got in touch with a lot of um charities who um and undercover filmmakers who sent me just tons of footage and the bulk of it was just um really really difficult to watch and it was kind of like what should I include in the film to the extent that we're showing what's going on enough that people get an idea but not to the extent that it's graphic and gruesome and that um you know people aren't going to watch the film because of it yeah, I mean, it, I can imagine it would be like a horror film, wouldn't it? It doesn't sound yeah. like a, <laughs> doesn't sound like a nice job for you, Alex, having to sift through all that. <laughs> no, and this the the thing about most of this footage, and it was most of it was filmed undercover, um, not on specific farms that have been targeted because they've had bad press, but just on random farms, just um, picked at random, and you see whatever factory farm it is really similar conditions and we were invited into a few farms as part of making this film um by people who genuinely felt they had nothing to hide and i think a lot of that is because they've been sort of desensitized to it but when you walk in as an outsider and it's like there's no way you could walk around those places and see those sites and smell what you can smell and think yeah, this is absolutely hygienic and fine and this isn't horrible for the animals and this isn't going to cause issues in terms of disease. Um, yeah. I think you did really well, Alex, to like just touch on the bits that needed, you know, you do need to have an image of what they're like so that you can understand why it's a problem. But I think it's it's done really well not to make it, you know, like traumatic being for anyone. And I think also that the people interviewed and, and the topics discussed are not always certainly a lot of non-vegans um interviewed from you know also across the scientific disciplines and and um farmers and medics and everything so i think it's it, it hopefully will be a really good one for non-vegans to watch because it doesn't feel like a vegan film if that makes sense yeah it's just it's, pointing out the major issues and you can very easily come to your own conclusions from that exactly i mean 
um, another sort of uh, whole section of the film focused on the human element of things. So even if you don't care about animals, you don't, you know, you're not thinking about animal cruelty or animal welfare or anything like that. It was still an eye opener because, I mean, for example, you know, the filming in the US with the factory farms over there and you had, you know, people dying of cancer, like in areas around the factory farms because of the, I mean, was it air pollution and water pollution and things like that? Yeah, yeah, and I think lots of people don't realise um, how intrinsically linked animal agriculture is with social injustice. Um, and a lot of people say things like, why are you focusing on animal injustice and not social injustice and other forms of human injustice? And the answer is that they're all one and the same and they're all linked. And hopefully this film shows that, you know, where these factory farms are placed usually in poorer communities of people who um, aren't viewed as having the power um, to combat these places. Um, You always see health issues come along with that. Um, And so hopefully we we shine a bit of light on that because that was something that I think I had no idea about until we started researching for the film. And then we were like, wow, we need to touch on this because, you know, this is about people, just as much as it's about animals yeah I think the whole film does sort of show how sort of how linked we all are we're all on this same planet and the more we interfere with nature the more you know problems we're going to see for ourselves um so antibiotic resistance was another thing that um the film explores and this is something I've worried about for <laughs> for years now. Um, you had lots of kind of scientists. You even had the mayor of New York, didn't you? Was it the mayor of New York? Yeah. Yeah. So, you, yeah, so many sort of experts and, um, you know, people who are in the know on there. So how does antibiotics resistance come into all this? Uh, so antibiotics globally, most of them are used in livestock now. I think it's about 70% or over are used in livestock and that is to prop up a system which is deeply inappropriate for the animals involved you know they can't they literally cannot survive long enough to be slaughtered at six months you know six weeks whatever animal it is um without the use of antibiotics and that poses massive issues for us um i think when we started filming the the data showed that i think it was about 700,000 deaths a year due to antimicrobial resistance. That has now shot up catastrophically. To data this year suggests it's now nearly 5 million deaths associated with antimicrobial resistance every year. So the, the previous estimate from the World Health Organization of 10 million deaths a year by 2050 is, is way off. You know, this is something which is killing already many, many more people than a pandemic uh, and will kill many more people um and it's something that you know dame sally davies in the film says it's going to kill us quicker than climate change and i think that's frightening looking at the state of climate change at the moment and where we're at and the the recent ipcc report the fact that antimicrobial resistance is something which is a little bit more frightening even than that is it's you know worrying and it's something that really needs to come into the public eye um i think particularly the fact that we're squandering these medicines in livestock that we do not need at all. Yeah, this is it. I mean, 
you know, we kind of think, oh, I better not, you know, I'll, I'll do my bit by not by saying no to the antibiotics because, you know, the doctor says I might need it, but I think I'll be OK. So I'm sort of doing my bit by. Uh, but that's just a drop in the ocean. It's it's all well, I think, did I say 70 percent? It's being fed to yeah. animals to help them to survive in these awful conditions. So mm-hmm. antibiotics were invented. Was it in the 1920s? I believe so. I, I don't have it in front of me. Um, well, they weren't um, invented in the 1920s, but um, penicillin was um, produced around that time. But antibiotics in a very basic form have been around for centuries. You know, they've, they've been used in ancient times in all sorts of different ways using sort of mould and it's all the same, but actual the process of manufacturing penicillin and making antibiotics this thing that you sort of spread um i yeah that was developed i think in the 1920s but um yeah it's it's really since that point people began to realize actually if we use these unfarmed animals not only will the animals grow faster but also we can keep them in live in conditions that are pretty horrific um and so the use of them has just grown and grown and in some parts of the world um i mean here for example in the uk the use of antibiotics as growth promoters have been banned but really there's no way of regulating that properly and if you look at the uk and europe we compare ourselves to america and we say actually our antibiotic usage is much safer um, so we're doing okay, but it's a bit of a false baseline because actually we're still using them to an extent that is incredibly detrimental. Um, and one of the things when you hear this and, and you think, well, why isn't this publicized more? It must be some kind of like pseudoscience, you know, some conspiracy. But then you look at the data and it's coming from the key health authorities all over the world. And, we, you know, we have Dame uh, Sally Davis, um, who was the former chief health advisor to the UK government speaking within this film. And um, like Alice said, she described it as something that could potentially be more detrimental to human health than even climate change. And so it's something that everybody needs to start focusing on in the same way that we're focusing on climate change. It's, it's a lot of it is about money, isn't it? So you know governments keeping the big agricultural industries not just in the US but it's in the UK as well I believe that you know they're sort of trying to keep them happy and that's why these changes aren't sort of you know being sort of championed by government what can we do to change that? I think um, it's becoming clearer by the second that the government do not care about us one bit um and nor do big companies trying to make money off us. So I think realising that actually this is one way in which we can uh, affect our impacts on climate change. We can prevent a future pandemic. We can prevent our life-saving medicines being uh, rendered useless just by making simple changes in our own life, um, which is really the key message of the film is to, to look at how we might be impacting all these things together I think I forgot the original question there I went off on some sort of soapbox situation (laughs) sorry (laughs) 
yeah, I, th- I think just realising that we can actually make that change ourselves and we vote with our wallets. You know, if we decide that we don't want to keep funding industries which are destroying our planet and causing great suffering for people and animals, um, you know, they're not going to have the money to continue. That's as simple as that. I was just going to say, I was just on that. Um, I think Dr. Aisha Akhtar said it quite nicely. She said, if if we're going to be waiting for governments to do the right thing, we're going to be waiting an awfully long time. Mm-hmm. And we all, you know, have that power to make changes right now. Yeah. I, I love the sort of ending to the film. It kind of concludes that science tells us, you know, if we're going to survive on this planet, and like I think you said, Alice, in the film, didn't you? You know, if we were going to continue how we were, we'd need like 10 planets or, you know, something like that. So if, we, if we're going to survive on this planet and, you know, okay, we might be all right, our children might be all right, but our grandchildren might not, and it goes on and on. And do we want to see that kind of world for our grandchildren or their children? So, you know, it, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to come to terms with, I think, for a lot of people because they don't want to give up meat. So, you know, how do we get around this? You know, we're being told by science that we need to go vegan to, you know, for so many different reasons. But what can we do about the people that that just don't want to do it? I think... Um... One is just sharing information like this in a way that is easy for people to understand the the real severity, but also realising that we're going to get to a point where we don't actually have a choice. You know, we're not going to be able to grow crops to feed animals uh, for that much longer because we're destroying the soil. We're not going to have the climate. We're, we're, you know, using all our water um, in inappropriate ways. Uh, We're not going to be able to treat the disease in the animals that we're currently throwing all our antibiotics at um and it's also causing massive you know public health issues which we're not going to be able to afford you know the the costs associated with farming animals are not sustainable in any way um and only takes a pandemic with a higher mortality rate than covid to to literally cripple us as a species um you know we've seen it's been almost like quite a useful almost like a dress rehearsal, if you like, COVID-19, because what we've seen is that everything that we're assured by governments is going to happen. You know, if if there's a problem, we will fix it. We'll create a vaccine. We'll, you know, lock people down, come up with biosecurity measures, et cetera. And we've lost over 5 million people. I think maybe it's even six now. Um, And, you know, we've been crippled for two years, two, three years now. What are we on? Two years uh, and not been able to do anything. I think it's very obvious that we can't do stuff reactively. It has to all be preventative. And the only way to prevent getting diseases from animals is to stop messing with the animals in the first place. Yeah, we're just sticking a plaster over things, aren't we? It's like, oh, we're great, we've got a vaccine. But, you know, like you say, what about when the next thing comes along? And it's, you know, it's impacted people even if they haven't experienced you know someone sadly dying that they know or in their family I mean personally you know my daughter has not been in school for six months because mm-hmm. she has such severe anxiety you know I was made redundant I mean that's just me one person it's, it's impacted so many people losing their jobs you know um, just yeah it's just been massive 
So I think this film couldn't have come at a better time. And thank you for both for making it. And um, as you know, as many people as we can get to watch it, the better. It's it's launching in the US on the tenth of May. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. On Apple TV, iTunes. I think a few others, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But those are the main ones. Uh, in terms of a UK release, we're still working on that with our um, distributors and hopefully we'll have some news soon. We want to release the film at around the same time. We just don't know what exact date and where it's going to go. But as soon as we do, we'll be posting about it on the End of Medicine's Instagram page and trying to spread the word. Fantastic. Yeah, well, anyone listening, as soon as it is available to watch, definitely download it and share the hell out of it with your friends and family. (laughs) Force them to watch it. Um, Because if they're not vegan, they sure as hell will be after that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, guys. I'll be back on Tuesday when Molly will be returning from her holiday in Portugal. And on Thursday, I'm chatting to founder of Bowl, Paul Brown, all about how we can get more plants into our diet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.